Trust is the foundation of life. Without trust, no human being can live. That's from Henry Nguyen. Not long before his death, Nguyen wrote a book called Sabbatical Journeys, where he wrote about some friends of his who were tra trapeze artists called the Flying Rudellas. Uh, they told Nguyen, there's a special relationship between flyer and catcher on the trapeze. Now the flyer, they're the ones that let go, and the catcher is the one that catches. Well, as the flyer swings high above the crowd on the trapeze, there's a moment that comes when they must let go, and they arc out into the air, and his job is to remain as still as possible and wait. Wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck him from the air. Well, one of the flying Rodellas told Nguyen this, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. Man, what a picture of the Christian life. In faith, we arc out into the air waiting for God to catch us. So do you trust God to catch you? Um, a few years ago, the Barna Institute measured the church life of Americans according to two, three different metrics related to church attendance. And here they were. There was a group called The Church. These were very active people who attended a church service in the past seven days. And then there was the unchurched. They have not attended a church service in six months or more. And then there was a third group, the de-churched. Those who were active churchgoers at one time, but have since not attended a church service in the past six months. Well, based on Barna's data, here's what he found. 38% of Americans are active churchgoers. 43% are unchurched, and around 34% are de-churched. Now, some people in the study reported in being in more than one category, so that's why it's over 100%. But if it seems like fewer and fewer people are active church members today nationally, that's because they are. There are fewer of them. In fact, when a difficult crisis occurs, most Americans will not look to the church for guidance. Though few of the unchurched and de-churched would call themselves an atheist, the majority would say they are skeptics or cynics, and they're cynical about the God the church believes in from Scripture. Now, I can't totally blame the de-churched and the unchurched for being so cynical. Here's the sad truth. In many ways, to be relevant to the culture, the church has marketed the gospel. The church has marketed God in such a way that the church has shrunk God. See, the hope being that the culture will like and that they'll approve the God that we follow if we shrink him. The church has painted an image of God that has made him smaller than he really is. Well, when your God is too small, it is difficult to trust God to catch you. And this is exactly what Israel is wrestling with in Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah 40, verse 27, Israel is filing a complaint against God. 
And they're whining because they believe God is not big enough to know what they are struggling with. Listen to what verse 27 says. Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, Jacob, and you assert, Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. In other words, God has lost us. And the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Uh, in there, he's saying, God doesn't care what happens to me. You see, God had an amazing plan for Israel. When you look through Scripture, God was going to take his people as small as they were compared to the other great nations, and God was going to use Israel to draw all people to himself. In fact, listen to what it was to be like in Zechariah chapter 8, verses 22 to 23. It says this, And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. Verse 23, And this is what the Lord Almighty says, In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Imagine that for a moment. The devotion of God's people was to be so genuine that God's people would be known for their integrity. God's people would be known for their love, the, the sincerity of their faith, the generosity that they had to the weak, to the poor, to the lonely. They would be known for their heartfelt worship and devotion to God. They would be known for joy, having joy in the Lord. And as they lived their faith, Gentiles would grab the arms of God's people and plead with them, take us to the God you serve because we have heard and we have witnessed God's greatness in you. Imagine that. And that was God's plan. But what happened? Isaiah chapter 3 verse 8 to 9 says this, Jerusalem staggers, Judah is falling, their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Israel basically slaps God in the face by rejecting him and, and looking to idols to replace him. And their rejection of God forces God to keep his promise to destroy the promised land if Israel were ever unfaithful to God. So when we catch up with God's people in Isaiah chapter 40, the promised land is destroyed and God's people are in exile. No longer drawn to God, the pagan nations are repulsed by God's people. In fact, they run away from Israel's God. The pagan nation view Israel's God as small, weak, easily defeated. Because Israel was a defeated people, their God must be weak. In their defeat, Israel thinks the culture is more powerful than God. So Israel complains to God. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, that's the complaint. And I love God's response to Israel's complaint. Instead of giving an answer, God asks Israel four questions in verse 21. Number one, do you not know? 
Number two, have you not heard? Number three, has it not been declared to you from the beginning? And number four, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And by asking these four questions, God's not waiting for an answer. No, these questions are a reprimand of Israel because Israel knows better. God's people know better. Do you remember as a kid when you were caught red-handed in a lie that you kept, uh, saying was true? And with frustration in their voice, your parent asked you this question, do I look stupid? Now you knew, at least I hope you did, you knew that question wasn't really looking for an answer. You knew the answer wasn't, why yes, dad, you do look stupid. Well, what was the point of the question? It was a reprimand. Your parents knew you were telling a lie, and you knew it. So in the question was a scolding. Well, see, through these four questions that God asks Israel, God is scolding them because Israel knows better than to question God's awareness. Israel knows better than to question God's care for them. Not only that, but did you notice how long they've known the answer to these questions? Look at the text again towards the end of verse 21. It says, from the beginning and from the foundations of the earth, Israel has a complete knowledge of God's work in history on their behalf for generations. But God's people have forgotten their history of being redeemed by God. So there's an important lesson here. Catch this. Our trust in God weakens when we forget God's work of salvation in history. But to make sure Israel gets the point, God gives an answer to his own questions in verses 22 to 23. As I read it, listen to the verbs of action. Verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. God's big, his people are small. And then it says, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to live in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. No sooner are they planted. No sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, and then God blows on them, and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. If Israel doubts God's sovereignty, if Israel doubts God's power, God shows his people what he did when times were good for Israel, and what God is still doing in the difficult times. For his people. Just look at that list again. God sits above the earth. It's the picture of God ruling over all space, not just the earth, but the Milky Way, every galaxy in the universe. And as he sits above all of them, he is directing their paths. Then God stretches and God spreads out the heavens. See, as you look in the heavens tonight, the stars, the moon, uh, the suns, the galaxies, they're God's tent. God is that majestic where the heavens cover him. 
And what is God doing each day? Oh, nothing much. He just rules over political and historical events. Take any powerful ruler in this world, and as big as they think they are, to God, they're like a dandelion seed. One puff of God's breath, and they're blown out of office. Uh, Choose whichever political figure, business person, or genius you want. It may look like they hold power, but they are under the very power of God who is enthroned above. And when God is done with them, he will puff and they will leave office. May I suggest that you not put your trust in any political party? Don't put your trust in a business or a nation. They will all one day fall. The only institution that will last for eternity is the church, God's new Israel. And having reminded God's people who God always is, notice the questions God asks in verses 25 to 26. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power, because of his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. When times are difficult, it's tempting to think the culture is right. That the gods of this world, we can think that the gods of this world are stronger than God. But I want you to look at this picture on your screen. In verse 26, it says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. And this is what you would see, this picture on your screen. And in seeing the stars and the planets, people were tempted to worship the stars. To worship the stars as those who determine the future of humanity. And that's what the Babylonians did. And God's people have picked that up. Israel began to follow the Babylonian culture as they put their trust in the power and the authority of the stars. But God says, don't follow the culture. They don't know how the world works. Think about it. The stars you worship as the Babylonians do, who made those stars? And God answers, I did. The stars aren't God's. I know because I created them, God says. And after making each one of them, I named them the same way you humans name your children. I even named the stars the Hubble telescope hasn't even seen yet and never will see. And here's the conclusion God wants his people to understand. Listen to the last sentence in verse 26. Because of his great power, because of his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. As one strong in power, if God knows the very stars, God knows you. Every detail about you. You are more precious to God than any star in the galaxy. God knows you. What's your biggest fear? God knows. What's your greatest joy? God knows. What's your greatest insecurity? God knows. What's your greatest hope? God knows. What will you need today? God knows. What will you need 
10 years from now? God knows. God knows all about you because like the stars in the heavens, God created you. Now, no matter how bad life can get in this world, God has not forgotten you. God knows, God cares about you. By the way, the culture that tempts us to trust them more than God, how well does our culture know us? How well does our culture know you? Remember all those details that God knows about you? Does your political party know about that about you? No. Does your favorite philosopher or thinker know you? Does your favorite actor, band, author, do they know you? No, 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 no. Then why do we put more trust in our culture than we do in God? You see, the people who mock Christians for having faith, they don't realize the role faith plays in everyday life. It takes faith to get married because marriage vows are promises. You put faith in your spouse to keep their promise. It takes faith to send children off to school because you trust the school to do what's best for your child. It takes faith to get a prescription filled. We trust the doctor and the pharmaceutical company's research that this medicine will help our illness. It takes faith to eat in a restaurant. It takes faith to deposit money in a bank. It takes faith to sign a contract, faith to drive on the highway, or to get on an airplane, or even to get on an elevator. Faith isn't just a religious experience. Faith is the glue that holds our lives together. But remember, faith is only as good as its object. Faith is only as good as who we put our trust in. If we trust people, we get what people can do. If we trust money, we get what money can do. If we trust ourselves, we only get what we can do. But if we trust God, we get what God can do. Church, hear what our great God can do in Psalm 147, verses 1 to 11. And as I read this psalm, listen for the back and forth description of God the powerful creator and creation's need for God. Praise the Lord. How good is it to sing praises to our God? How pleasant and fitting to praise Him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted, and He binds up their wounds. God determines the number of the stars, and He calls them each by name. Great. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain, and he makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young, ravens when they call. God's pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, horse nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him. 
Those who put their hope in his unfailing love. You see, the Psalms move from a statement about God's power and strength to creation's weakness and need for God's strength. You see, as a part of creation, we as humans, we are weak and needy people. We need God. So trust is accepting our weakness and freeing us to trust God to catch us, for He is our hope and joy. Do you trust God?